Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. Today you're listening to Lessons on Leadership, our weekly conversation with inspiring people sharing some of the stories and lessons from their journey. If there's one thing we've ever learned in Russian history, it's that uh, Russia doesn't stop uh, when they feel like they've eaten enough of their territory on their periphery. They they keep marching until they, in Lenin's words, they they, they march, and if they hit steel, they'll turn around. If they hit kasha, which is mush, uh, then they advance. We had a very timely and enlightening conversation today with Matt Demick, a West Point graduate, career Army officer, and former director of the National Security Council for Russia and Eastern Europe. As Russian troops build along the Ukrainian border, we discuss lessons from Matt's many years living in Russia and Eastern Europe, what the people of Russia are like, what are some of the misconceptions we might have about each other, and why this potential conflict that could seem so far away really matters to us here in the United States. Matt has seen the world from some unique vantage points and possesses a lot of wisdom about a people and culture from a region most of us never have the opportunity to experience. Let's go talk with Matt. Well, good morning. Awesome to see everyone on a snowy morning, but it's warm wherever you are inside. So that's why it's good we've got Zoom. We don't have to get out in this. We can uh, still gather and and share some great stories. And I'm excited, been excited for over a year, knowing Matt Demick was going to return to Kansas City. And he's had a fascinating journey, uh, long military career, time in the White House, time overseas, and a unique perspective to a lot of current events that are really uh, timely and, and I think of interest to all of us. Well, let's go way back, Matt. Talk about where you grew up and what inspired you to West Point. And, and everybody that goes to West Point has some, some lessons of resilience and grit and perseverance they took away from that experience. Tell us a little bit about early Matt journey. Uh, thanks, Randy. Really appreciate the opportunity to uh, be with all of you today. I've dialed in a number of times. I've always been impressed with um, the uh, conversation. Always walk away with something interesting. So hopefully I can uh, help continue the streak. Uh, it, to answer your question, Randy, I uh, was not originally from this area. We we had a homecoming of sorts coming back here to the Kansas City area. But I grew up in a northeast uh, Ohio town, a little farming town in the, in the middle of nowhere. But my parents resettled moved for job reasons. And uh, when I was a teenager, I ended up here in uh, Overland Park. So I went to and graduated from uh, Shawnee Mission South and uh, had the, the uh, uh, privilege of being accepted to the U.S. Military Academy. I had really no idea what I was getting myself into or what I was signing up for. I had a fairly superficial knowledge of what it was all about. Uh, I guarantee once I got there, I was quickly educated about what I had, uh, what I had stepped into. So the first, uh, you know, the first uh, first year after I'd kind of gotten over the shock of what it all meant uh, and uh, you know what it what it all entailed, and uh, uh, really, really just came to love everything about the army, its history, its uh, the traditions, the sense of purpose, the uh, the um, you know just everything about the teamwork, the sacrifice, the camaraderie, and just being around everybody else who had decided to sign up and, and wear the uniform with uh, the U.S. Army strip over the over the tag. So I was I was committed. I was a, a true believer from uh, from the beginning and uh, just absorbed everything that uh, that West Point had to offer. Just kind of kind of soaked it in, asked for seconds. And on the on the far side of that, they turned me loose as an infantry officer and 
uh, went to all the infantry schools. Uh, so uh, got trained up in my uh, profession, you know, learned all those things. And after graduating from ranger school, headed off to, uh, you know, headed off to the military for, you know, a series of um, uh, jobs as a lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne Division and then uh, uh, captain of the 1st Armored Division. Those were extremely formative years in uh, my leadership journey. So everything I think I learned or practiced, uh, learned during those uh, eight to nine years when I was uh, with troops in infantry battalions all over, uh, all over the U.S. and you know, overseas. So that's interesting. So you didn't go to West Point uh, with the intention of a lifetime career in the military. Your your dream sounds like it changed along the way. I was a 17 year old kid who really had no idea what I wanted to do. The military sounded interesting. Uh, truth be told, I I had applied to every service academy, and I even applied to half a dozen other colleges. You know, back the back in the 80s, we didn't have the there was no internet or whatever. So you went to the college fair, you picked up a few magazines, and then you know applied to colleges. Didn't really have a very intentional plan. So I applied to a whole bunch of places. I, I got rejected by every single college, even all the uh, service academies, the Naval Academy, Air Force Academy. They had nothing, wanted nothing to do with me. And I think, uh, to be honest, I don't think West Point had me on their first string. So uh, I got my acceptance way late in the game. I, I didn't even know where I was going to go to school. So I was just happy to be, uh, I was just happy to get accepted by any place. So I was, I took my, I took my one acceptance letter and, and ran with it and, uh, and then never really looked back. Are there particular individuals or experiences that you think really influenced you in that early West Point, early leadership journey, you know, coming out of West Point, going into Ranger School, folks that just stood out as really shaping your your future? You know, when when you're at West Point, you're just surrounded by, you're just, you know, based in a whole bunch of people. Uh, you've got tactical officers, you've got uh, non-commissioned officers, you've got uh, you know, fellow fellow cadets, all of whom are fantastic people. So you learn you learn from the best, and you're around the best. Uh, you know, I I was particularly influenced by uh, just a number of individuals that um, that I encountered when I was out in my summer training, out working working with uh, you know folks in the army, and you, you really got the sense of what the what the profession was all about. So talk us through how this turned into deployments to Germany and then ultimately a lot of time in Russia and learning about Russia and the, the Russia region. Yeah, how did all that come about? So in the Army, we have this uh, program mid-career uh, when you're at the end of your uh, captain time, so to speak, uh, you know, after you've uh, successfully commanded a company and you're at that eight to nine year mark, the Army gives you a few options. You can continue on whatever branch you're in and continue uh, stepping stones of progressive assignments that work their way up the chain of increasing responsibility. They also offer some uh, other exotic options. One of them was a, a program in the Army, we call it the Foreign Area Officer Program or FAO program for short. And this is a cadre, small cadre of officers who are steeped in the particular region, uh, all every region across the world, uh, but individual officers have a particular region that they focus in, and those officers are basically the um, you know we we call ourselves the strategic scouts for the army for the military because we're uh, 
given the responsibility of uh, being political military experts on a particular region, regional expertise, understanding the ins and outs of those particular countries and all the forces that go into making those countries particular geopolitical forces of their own and all the all the uh, geopolitical interchanges that happen that the uh, they expect FAOs to be somewhat expert in all of those relationships so that they can be employed in a variety of jobs throughout the army and across the world uh, that help us gain a better perspective on our adversaries and better perspective on uh, how to strengthen our alliances and our partnerships so i jumped uh, with both feet into that program. The Army, in, in its infinite wisdom, gave me my third choice. I had selected two other regions, but they gave me uh, Eurasia instead. Uh, so I uh, trucked off to a training program, uh, which in the Army, it's a very lengthy training program. They invest a lot of time in, in FAOs and making sure that we've got uh, the appropriate background in order to do the jobs that are expected of us. So I launched into a year of uh, language school at at uh, Monterey at our Defense Language Institute, where we had old Soviet dissidents pound verbs and conjugations into our heads every day for a year from morning till night until we were uh, fluent enough to be released into the wild. And then uh, spent about a year and a half doing uh, some in-country training where uh, the uh, Army expects you to travel to all the countries in your region so that you're comfortable operating in all those places and you, you learn on the ground exactly who these people are what they what they're doing get uh, get down you know below the the book learning level to really understand uh the geography the people the the societies and after a year and a half of traveling around the baltics and the caucasus and belarus ukraine moldova central asia and a few places through russia uh, had the good fortune of coming back here to Kansas City for a, a year and a half of a graduate program for Russian Eastern European Studies at the University of Kansas. And once that, that period of training was over, then the Army put me to work uh, on my first FAO assignment. And I drew the, uh, the Heart of Darkness card, and they sent me right to Moscow to be a, an Army attache. So uh, at that point, my wife and I and our three young daughters at the time uh, packed off, moved to Russia, and I spent a um, good two years there doing the, the standard cat, cat and mouse game that we do with our, our, our Russian counterparts over there. Where we have our missions, they have their missions, and then uh, and, and we see who wins. So at that point in time, there were not as many diplomatic uh, travel restrictions on attaches or diplomats writ large. So we took full advantage of that. I had uh, uh, carte blanche to travel uh, across the country uh, doing missions basically from St. Petersburg, Volgograd, all the way to the Pacific Rim on Russia's East Coast. And then of course, every uh, decaying Siberian city in between. So I had a, a, a incredible experience, one that uh, you know, our current diplomats are currently not getting the opportunity to get, but I've really got a chance to see Russia behind the scenes, Russia from outside the garden ring of Moscow, and uh, find out a, lot, a whole lot more about what that country uh, is, is really made of. Uh, it's it very eye-opening. And uh, after Moscow, I uh, did a variety of sort of nondescript jobs. These are sort of uh, failed building block jobs. I served in the U.S. Army Europe headquarters as a security cooperation director. 
uh, and then uh, deployed to Iraq for a year as uh, uh, you know provincial police advisor of all things, where I led a team of police advisors who were helping a police chief uh, uh, increase their capacity for one of the regions down in southwest Iraq, and then uh, landed in the Pentagon for a year on chief of staff, the Army's staff, where I was uh, uh, his deputy foreign policy advisor. Uh, after that, I had a stint at a senior service college, and then uh, the, uh, I drew an extremely lucky card uh, being assigned as the uh, senior defense official and defense attache in the country of Georgia. So, uh, again, our family, our daughters were older at this time. One of, one of them was off to college, but uh, we packed up, moved to Tbilisi, to the Caucasus, uh, and I spent uh, three years there responsible for overseeing all of the uh, defense operations and missions and personnel that were uh, floating uh, in and around Georgia or had uh, you know had intersections with the Georgian military and uh, had a marvelous time uh, conspiring with the Georgian military to help build their capacity and uh, make them a much more indigestible target for their aggressive neighbors to the north. Uh, after that, it was payback time for uh, for that assignment. So it was a Pentagon tour uh, back in D.C. And I was assigned to Secretary Mattis' staff as his Russia director and spent uh, another three years there sort of drawing up our plans and policies for uh, how to compete with Russia, you know, identifying their vulnerabilities and, and uh, figuring out what policies make, make more sense when it comes to directing our uh, Department of Defense assets against this great power competitor that we had. And at that point, I, I was hitting uh, the 27-year mark at the end of my tour at the Pentagon. So already contemplating some retirement plans and figuring out what the what the next step would be and i uh, had uh, uh, dr fiona hill who was the president's advisor for europe and russia reached out to me asking if i would be interested in uh, coming to the national security council staff as the russian director and of course you know when when something like that happens with somebody from the white house asks you to come and do a hard job there's there's really only only one answer. So I, I signed up for it, pulled my retirement plans off the shelf, and uh, jumped uh, jumped into the, the White House gig. Uh, arrived there in September of 2019, which, if you'll recall, September of 2019 was a uh, period about two months after a fateful conversation that our previous president had had with the president of Ukraine that launched an impeachment investigation. But about a month prior to uh, the actual congressional hearings. So I stepped into an office. This was the office of Europe and Russia, uh, which the National Security Council was not that not that big, uh, and uh, you know, in, in all in uh, in perspective, it's it's maybe a hundred directors. Uh, so it's you were divided up into regions and functional areas. The office of Europe and Russia was about about eight directors, and we all had uh, Europe carved up into our various portfolios. So this wasn't a small office. Uh, but when I when I walked in, uh, it wasn't a very big office, a very small insular team. Uh, but when I walked in, the uh, this was uh, September, and the rumblings of uh, it, uh, of uh, whistleblower complaints and uh, improprieties and impeachable offenses were just getting off the ground. So I I came into an office that was uh, just about in the, in, a, in the initial weeks where I was there. Uh, well, our national security advisor resigned the first week I was there, Ambassador Bolton. 
uh, was replaced by a, a, a new national security advisor who was job one was to slash the National Security Council staff and reduce personnel by a third. And, and then in the first few weeks, uh, our office became the epicenter for in a, a whole host of really dark things that our, our office was being really torn apart by uh, leaks from within the administration. We had uh, accusations about uh, who was doing what, counter accusations or congressional subpoenas that were flying in through the window every single day that were wrapping up members of our of our office. And uh, then and we just had a good old fashioned uh, political purge that took away uh, you know, a good third of the office. Um, I had a colleague of mine uh, named Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman, who sat next to me, who was working the Ukraine account, was sort of at the uh, sort of at the epicenter of a lot of this congressional impeachment. Uh, he was he was uh, you know a, a target for uh, presidential wrath, uh, you know, directly targeted at him. Our senior director and him and uh, a couple others from uh, from the office all asked to come uh, or. I guess they were required to come and uh, submit their testimony in front of uh, in front of Congress. So the the clean lights of attention were were cast uh, very brightly on our office, and it was uh, it, it, it was an interesting time to try to get all the work done that we were supposed to get done uh, while dealing with all this uh, you know this environment of sort of chaos and you know lack of trust and uh, you kind of a kind of a breakdown in the in the chain of command. So very interesting times. Uh, uh, managed to survive my my twenty month tour there. I bridged the, the two administrations. I had uh, seventeen months of that was with the Trump administration all the way to the bitter end, and then we helped welcome in the the Biden administration and get uh, uh, and get the new administration's Russian policies formulated. I had a series of you know very very interesting things. It's always it's a crisis a day at the White House, as you can imagine. There's uh, no no small measure of uh, issues that come across the desk that are blazing hot and on fire. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, I liken it to a sort of a blindfolded tightrope walk without a net in a, in a hailstorm. That was, that was every day uh, in, in my White House experience. So it was uh, one, you know, in many cases, fascinating, a lot of times terrifying, uh, my, the other folks in the office, the ones who were left, who were working all the peaceful Western Europe issues, uh, they were always laughing at my account because uh, at one time I, I had the Russia account. And then when uh, Vindman got the boot, uh, I adopted all of his countries. So I had Ukraine, uh, Moldova, Belarus, and the three Caucasus countries. And at one point in time, every single one of my countries was either occupied by Russia, uh, at war with Russia, uh, exchanging artillery fire or they were dealing with a political insurrection in the case of Belarus, or they were at war with each other. I had uh, a period of time where Azerbaijan and Armenia, uh, uh, conflict sparked up and they fought for 45 days. Our, uh, you know, our team was trying to get, uh, get to grips with what to do and how to do it where our national interests lay. So uh, I, I'm happy to discuss any and all of that. And I'm, you know, look forward to uh, everybody's questions. You know, I want to start there and, and work back um, because we got to that part faster than I expected, but it's it's fascinating. One, I, I think we view the White House as a residence, but there's this whole business that's taking place in there 
talk a little bit about just what the pace of that's like. It's, I guess it's an around the clock operation that you've got going on because world events don't stop. And then two, what did you learn from what sounds like a really difficult uh, environment to create teamwork and trust in what you stepped into? And what do you take away from that from a leadership perspective? Yeah, you hit on it, Randy. It's uh, uh, if you were ever in doubt about whether the key ingredient to teamwork and leadership is trust, then you just look at uh, uh, some of uh, some of the White House experiences I had, and you, you will you will quickly realize that trust is the essential glue that keeps that keeps everything running. Uh, you know, when it comes to the White House, yeah, you see the uh, uh, you know the the office of the president is fairly large. Uh, he's got um, a large apparatus to help deal with the business of the day and run uh, run the executive branch. So uh, the, the the president has a fairly wide ranging staff. There's a domestic staff. There's a uh, there's the national security staff. Uh, there's an administrative staff that keeps the whole operation running. And then you also have an entire White House military office, uh, which runs all of the uh, Air Force One fleet and gets the keeps the uh, all the military apparatus running that supports the president's operations. So it's a very big organization. Uh, the slice that I had most experience with, of course, was over in the National Security Council staff. And National Security Council uh, it it expands and it contracts depending on the whims of the president and that president's personal style. Uh, with uh, with President Trump. Uh, his instinct was uh, you know, sort of a uh, dislike of the so-called deep state or dislike of uh, being managed when it came to uh, having regular order and discipline when it comes to policymaking. So there was a much different approach in the Trump administration when it came to how national security policy was formulated. Uh, for the most for the most part, the president had uh, other interests. Uh, so the vast majority of the National Security Council work, the uh, you know the 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 ninety percent that doesn't make the headlines, uh, sort of continue on without uh, without too much trouble. Uh, but uh, when, it, when it comes to organization, I'll I'll tell you the uh, National Security Council staff, like I said, relatively small, about 200, 200 people total. A uh, hundred of those are directors who are working on a very specific portfolio of a range of countries or maybe a particular functional area like cybersecurity or counterterrorism. Uh, there's a very thin band. It's not a not a very hierarchical organization. It's, uh, it's very flat. There's the National Security Advisor, a handful of about two dozen senior directors who have oversight over large portions of the portfolio. And then below those senior directors, you've got um, probably, like I said, about 100 of us directors who are grinding away on various issues. So that's it. Uh, the, and what that, what that supports is the ability for uh, uh, decision making and policies to move very fast from the president's desk all the way down to uh, the person who's grinding it out with the interagency. And then right back up again. So there would be there would be many times when it came to pace of operations where something would spring up overnight, midday, uh, and we would get the policy apparatus into gear, convene as much of the interagency as we could to try to come up with some decisions and policy recommendations and uh, courses of action. Uh, and this all could take place within a few hours, and it would be 
uh, through our senior director's uh, approval up to the national security advisor who would walk it into the, the Oval Office and either tell the president what uh, what was happening, what options were available or ask for decisions. This could all happen in a, you know, in a very quick span of time uh, because the National Security Council staff's organization ability to uh, to maneuver quickly. Uh, and of course, there were also issues that took months of grinding policy work and they didn't yield results overnight but that was that was kind of the kind of the environment you could you could come in with issues that were absolutely burning uh with a, a wick connected to a stick of dynamite that was about to go in you know a matter of hours or you would be dealing with policies that had far-ranging effects that affected uh how our nation was going to be postured uh, years or a decade from now so that's uh you know that that's kind of the environment we're in uh now most of most of the directors and senior directors come from a variety of sources uh, i was detailed from the from the department of defense uh other directors come from the department of state uh and then uh, a, a good number of directors come from our intelligence agencies from the cia from uh director of national intelligence from defense intelligence agency so you've got a lot of uh you know, very senior folks working working the policies who know the issues and who are very familiar with all the interagency counterparts that that uh, are needed to provide the right input. Uh, that's that's the kind of organization and teamwork uh, that uh, that uh, that we have in place. Now, when it when it comes to actually getting the work done, uh, the the relationships and the trust are absolute uh, step one. Uh, like I said, when I when I got there, our our department became sort of the pariah, uh, and there was uh, not there were not a lot of people who were interested in uh, working with or dealing uh, with our office at the time because it was I wouldn't say radioactive, but people were very concerned about uh, discussions with our office and where they would go and how you know how those things would end up or whether it was going to be splashed across the front page of the of the Washington Post. So in that environment, it was very very dicey for. Uh, several months when it came to trying to pull information from departments and get uh, get agencies to work together on particular issues, uh, I had uh, a, I had to rely on you know the the relationships that I had built with my uh, defense counterparts, my state counterparts, uh, my intelligence counterparts, all of whom who, who knew me and, and could trust that uh, that the information that they were giving me would be treated correctly, that their departments and agencies would be dealt with fairly in a fair hearing and uh, wouldn't be wouldn't be negative ramifications for it. Without that trust, then agencies shut down and the policy process starts to freeze. Uh, so I, I quickly found out that uh, the, you know, you, as we say in the military, you can't surge trust. And that was never more true uh, than when I showed up at the, showed up in my new position there at the White House. Uh, the, if I hadn't had those previous relationships with uh, a, a whole bunch of senior folks in the departments that I had to work with, uh, then I would have been combat ineffective from, from day one. So the, you know, that, that trust is easy. It's hard to build. It takes time. Uh, it's very easy to destroy, as I saw, uh, you know, firsthand uh, with several other directors in my office who, uh, uh, you know, went, went the other way. Let's jump back a bit and then we'll go to some questions. You know, I think uh, folks on this call that have traveled the world understand that 
being out there among the people is usually different than the perspectives we have from the news. You spend a lot of time in regions that are very much in the news today. What, what did you learn about the people, the way of life, you know, Russia, Ukraine, the Baltic states, Georgia, what, what was unique about them that maybe uh, we wouldn't know from the perspectives we get from the news? Uh, yeah, that's, um, you know, it's a very big umbrella. The, uh, in, in a lot of ways, every, every people, every region uh, are completely different. They come from a completely different background and history, and it's important to understand where those people come from and the type of history that they learn and the stories that those cultures have taught them about who they are and, and, and what they believe in. So in many ways, it's, it's um, it, you know, every, every different set of people is a microcosm of their history and their interactions and their, their relatives and their experiences. So that's, that's important. On a broader scale, uh, I found no matter where I traveled, everybody had very much the same characteristics across the board. They, for the most part, uh, everywhere you go, you will find good people who are trying to do good things, who are working uh, to protect their families and build their communities and who want the best for their families and want their kids to be uh, uh, free and happy and prosperous. That's universal. Every, everywhere I, there was absolutely no change to that. Um, what was interesting though is uh, you, you do have a variety of different cultures uh, wherever you go and that will, that will color uh, how those people behave and how they collectively, uh, you know, in Russia, uh, everybody you meet is salt of the earth. I mean, they are, they're, you would recognize them as uh, fellow Midwesterners uh, if you if you if you got uh, got to know them. Uh, they invite you in uh, if you're if you're trusted. You're part of the family, and there's there's really no difference there. Uh, now you put you put several of them together, and it can be a disaster, you know, on a political front because they make they make decisions that are uh, that you sometimes scratch your head. Uh, but uh, when I was in uh, when I was in Russia, I learned you know very, uh, very quickly and you know very deeply that uh, you know the Russian people themselves are incredibly proud of their history. They are an incredibly resilient, tough people. These are these are people who, when they re when they when they crack open their history books, they are looking at a thousand years of uh, surviving invasions and dealing with uh, threats on every one of their frontiers and having uh, the, the guts and the ability to withstand some of the most severe weather conditions on the face of the planet. Uh, and these people have lived through it. Their relatives have lived through it. Their ancestors have lived through it. And they, that uh, is just imbued in the way that they look at their society. So uh, you take a Russian uh, and you, you ask them about um, about what their circumstances are and where they're headed, they will. They are tough to defeat. They are one of the probably the most resilient nations on the face of the earth. They've they've seen it before. They've seen uh, invasions. They've seen and uh, experienced the loss of thirty million people at a whack when it comes to the World War II losses. They've experienced famine and, and depressions and, and so forth. So they have this cultural DNA that allows them to think that no matter what comes their way, 
uh, they will not only survive it, but they will emerge on the other side uh, tougher than when they when they started. That makes when it comes to uh, our uh, strategic planning uh, that affects a lot of our decisions because you just can't out suffer the Russians. There's no amount of pain that you're going to inflict on the Russians or the Russian people or their elected uh, or autocratic leadership that's going to change their minds if their minds are set on a, on a particular objective. All you can do is protect yourself against whatever uh, whatever it is that they have in mind and uh, try to influence their decision making when it comes to uh, costs and costs and, uh, and benefits. So that was the key thing I learned from the Russians that I always that I always take away because there there are certain strains of folks in our government who think that uh, just give it time and the Russians and the uh, Russians as a power will just fade away. Well, that's just not that's not true. It's not not backed up by the facts and it's not backed up by uh, anyone who's ever dealt with them or worked with them. Uh, other places, you uh, like when I worked with the Georgians, you realize. Uh, you know, geography and culture uh, have an equally uh, firm impact on people like that. You know, Georgians are, uh, you know, predominantly a mountain people. And there's, to, you know, broad generalizations, mountain people and, uh, and valley people have very different cultures. And mountain people are uh, tough, they're proud, uh, they, will, they, they will fight to the bitter end and they have a you know history of independence and you know, they just don't want to be bossed around by anybody else. And Georgians fit that to a T. They they live in a tough environment where they've probably been invaded. And I think Tbilisi to some extent has been burned down 30 times in the course of their history. So they're they're used they're used to living in a violent environment, but they have they have uh, preserved that spark of independence. And their sort of uh, spirit of maintaining their own culture throughout a history of uh, of other people trying to tell them what to do or subsume them into their own culture. So uh, those are those are some basic things I learned while I was while I was out and about. Is that uh, all people generally the same? Uh, they all have the same uh, interests. They all have the same designs about their. Uh, about their family and self-preservation and wanting wanting the best for their own people. Uh, but there are factors from their history, from their geography, and from their society and the, the, the fables that they tell themselves about their origins that impact how they how they think, how they act, and how they organize. Awesome. Let's go take some questions. Uh, let's go to Jeff. Matt, good seeing you again. Um, I, uh, having worked for what I like to say every T-shirt size company from small 16 employees to over a million, um, I find your National Security Council uh, experience and uh, kind of talking through that where, you know, a company, obviously you're trying to do great things and depending on the level of trust with leadership and your colleagues. But I mean, you're dealing with obviously <laughs> global national security, life and death. And just, it's amazing really when you look at it from that perspective, you know, versus, you know, trying to launch a product or <laughs> marketing campaign. So it's a little different, but uh, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, the biggest uh, misconception the U.S. 
uh, people have about Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, and that region, um, in your opinion? Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting question. Uh, lots of lots of misconceptions uh, about about that particular region. Uh, the uh, one is that what happens in Ukraine it has no bearing on uh, our own national security interests, which I completely disagree with, and I think the facts support it. The uh, there's a certain strain of people who think that well, it, you know, things that happen all the way over in Central Europe should have really you know no bearing on the us and we shouldn't be wasting our time or resources or considering getting into a, a tussle with another major power over something as insignificant as a uh, you know a, a corrupt country in the, in the middle of europe these are these are serious misconceptions about european security that are uh, kind of you know for various reasons take on a life of their own. But um, uh, when you look at the region of uh, Central Europe, these are these are the bloodlands. These are the places where uh, war and, uh, and uh, European insecurity are born. And when there's trouble in the bloodlands, when there is trouble in that stretch of the world, it doesn't stay contained to that part of the world. It has a tendency to draw in other major powers and it, uh, it uh, erodes everybody's security across that region. So that's one huge misconception is that uh, uh, we should just let Russia have its way with all of the countries on its periphery. And that if we do that, then Russia will be mollified and maybe we can come to some type of agreement. That's uh, a complete misreading of the of the facts. There's If there's one thing we've ever learned in Russian history, it's that uh, Russia doesn't stop uh, when they feel like they've eaten enough of their territory on their periphery. They, they keep marching until they, in Lenin's words, they, they, they march and if they hit steel, they'll turn around. If they hit Kasha, which is mush, uh, then they advance. So having, uh, having a uh, policy of taking European, Central European security seriously is incredibly important for our own national security interests and to keep the uh, keep the Russians from thinking that uh, they they will get to tear up the rules uh, that we've established over the last seven decades when it comes to the security apparatus that, that keeps countries in Europe from tearing each other's throats out. So that's a big misconception. Another big misconception about Russia is there's two. There's and I saw it at the Pentagon. We had uh, two widely different assessments, and there very rarely seem to be people who uh, would seek the middle ground. Uh, in one case, uh, we would have the uh, Chicken Littles who saw Russia as 12 foot tall in every in every aspect and were uh, so capable and so strong that uh, we really should be paying an inordinate amount of attention to what they were doing and where they were doing it and that we should uh, exert influence everywhere across the globe to try to keep back this global behemoth from affecting all of our interests. That, that uh, that twelve foot tall uh, Russian misnomer is uh, completely misplaced because Russia has, even though they sharpen a number of capabilities and have uh, quite a bit of reach across the globe to stir trouble and make life difficult, uh, they also come with a raft of vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Uh, so the twelve foot tall Russian idea is is one misnomer that, uh, that we battle against constantly. The other misnomer is the the weak man of Europe. Uh, idea that uh, 
Russian demographics are declining. Russian economy is weak. The uh, the the Russian people are having a you know a brain drain. The 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 Putinist system of government is fragile, and is the you know, the autocratic system is is one that is uh, just ripe for failure and will collapse at any time. So. Uh, give uh, you know Russia ten to fifteen years, and it will disappear from the world stage as a fading power uh, that won't cause us any trouble. So let's pay attention to some other things. Uh, leave Russia to its own devices to uh, dissolve in its own weakness and contradictions. That, of course, is an equally wrong misnomer because Russia comes with uh, incredible strengths. It's a nation that spans 12 time zones. It's got a seat at the National Security Council. It has enough nuclear weapons to uh, eradicate our nation as a as a functioning entity uh, and destroy the world, uh, and it, uh, it it brings you know enormous amount of capability when it comes to ground forces and the ability to threaten neighbors and regions all across the world. So it, that that hasn't changed and won't change. Uh, they're you know an immense they have immense national resources. Uh, they have enough nat- natural gas and oil to pump for probably another hundred years if they if they if they wanted to. Uh, and they, so they, they come with some immense strengths uh, that can't be discounted. So those are those are the two big misnomers on the Russia side. I want to jump over Drew and go to Elizabeth because I think she's got the reverse of this question and then we'll come back to Drew in just a second. Yeah, so I was, um, I love, thank you so much for being here um, and sharing these amazing stories with us. I was piggybacking off of Jeff's great question to flip it and say, what are some of the um, misconceptions, misnomers that you found on the other side that you were having to dispel um, or address and come at from a different angle, perhaps, um, about what they think about us and our motivations. And um, so just love to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a great question because we rarely think about what the what the other side actually thinks about us. Because of course, being being Americans and being the beacons of democracy and human rights and so forth, the, anything the United States does or pursues, of course, is pure as the driven snow. So how could any potential uh, competitor or uh, uh, or non-ally of ours possibly think the that we were doing things that? Uh, we're not we're not good or we're not productive. Uh, these are uh, uh, you know these these are, of course are things that uh, the Russia thinks every day. And you when you put yourself in the mindset of the Russians and especially the Russians who occupy the Kremlin, uh, when they look at their national security, they see nothing but vulnerabilities and they see blinking red lights of threats all across the board. Um, to us, that makes very little sense because we, of course, don't have any intentions of invading Russia, threatening Russia, launching missiles at Russia. Uh, the, you know, this makes this makes no sense to us from a cognitive side. From the Russian side, uh, they may believe that at a, um, at a uh, cognitive level, but in their hearts, they know that it, that capabilities and mass and firepower that are mounted on their periphery is always a threat and will never stop being a threat. And the only way to, uh, to make those, those types of threats less or to minimize them 
is to seek control over the ground on Russia's periphery and expand that as far as it will possibly go and reduce and minimize those threats before they manifest themselves into what's always happened in Russian history. And that is when there are forces on Russia's borders that are strong and uh, have, uh, have interests in the rich lands that, that Russia possesses, they always seek to take a bite out of it. So uh, they learned this from the Mongols. They never forgot it. The, uh, the, the Napoleonic armies uh, marched on Russia. Uh, the, the, the armies of the Kaiser marched on Russia. And then, of course, uh, you know, Hitler tried to put the ultimate stake into Russia. And they, they survived all of those through Herculean efforts. Uh, but the lessons that Russia takes away is that you never allow a large unified force on your periphery to become organized and build up its power without taking action. So when Russia looks west, what they see is a unified uh, a NATO alliance uh, with a constellation of allies and partners that, uh, that completely encircle it. Uh, now, like I said, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we know exactly what those forces are for, and what they're designed for, and what their what their authentic purpose is. Uh, but the Russians uh, are never going to believe that, and they will always take that into account. So, when the Russians look at us, uh, they you have to consider the fact that they see threats where we don't see threats, and they will always see those that way and interpret it, interpret them that way. Uh, you know, over time, we've come up with ways of uh, mitigating this, this type of strategic tension with arms control treaties, with uh, transparency, with uh, ideas about uh, trying to understand each other and uh, what the uh, motivations and purpose and intentions of the forces and the exercises that we're doing. Those are, you know, those are the types of things you have to do to try to mitigate the, you know, mitigate those types of uh, misinterpretations. But that interpretation will always be out there for the Russians, and it always has to be accounted for. We shouldn't we shouldn't discount their, uh, you know, how they how they think and how they feel because it's important. It doesn't mean we're going to change what we do, uh, but we have to interpret it from their perspective. And they will they will see tanks and missiles and anti ballistic missile defenses uh, as just an increasing threat to a threshold of which once we get there then it will become irresistible for us to finally take Russia off the table and, and knock them out for good. And that's that's how the Russians think and that's how they interpret all of our actions. And they see this encirclement, they, they call it an encirclement, from the Arctic all the way through our NATO alliance down into the Middle East. Uh, we had bases in Central Asia at one point that they interpreted as further encirclement. And then of course we have a ring of bases on the Pacific Ocean. Uh, which are uh, which contain their access to the to the Pacific, and which they also interpret as just another ring of allied pressure uh, to keep the Russians in place. So, long answer to a very uh, very good question. But uh, when when you're looking at it from the Russians' perspective, they they are uh, they are fearful of what we bring to the table, and they're always going to be looking for ways to make that go away. Yeah, that's fascinating uh, to think about how they view all of that. Let's go over to Drew. Matt, I absolutely love hearing you, your your stories and perspective. I, I can only imagine some of the, the different things that you and I could talk about since I was one of the guys who helped build the bases in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, I, I, there's a lot to that. And I say it that way because um, let's go back to the very beginning, and, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on where we are at 
when it comes to the teachings of the military academy when we were young kids, uh, talking about professionalism and our responsibility to our government being apolitical uh, and all the things that we learned as a young cadet, um, how is our military doing um, in that perspective of, of the academy setting that kind of standard? I'm curious as to what your perceptions are about our military staying apolitical and keeping this trust with our government, our elected government officials who really control us. How are we doing? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, um, you know, somewhat removed in the last uh, decade or so from you know, our junior officers. So I, I wish I could say with uh, certainty or with a with authority exactly what kind of product we're getting out of our service academies and our junior officers. I, I want to believe that uh, the, the same principles that you and I learned and the uh, the types of leadership lessons that were infused from the beginning uh, are uh, immutable and are still being imprinted onto the, you know, into the character of all of those uh, fresh lieutenants and junior officers. I, I have to, I have to believe that. I, I think the performance of our military shows that. I'm, I haven't seen any, uh, you know, anything to the contrary. You see story after story about our, our about our junior officers doing amazing things uh, all over all over the world uh, and, and and getting results in very adverse environments in in complex environments. And uh, uh, you know, when when we were lieutenants and, and captains, the, the the tactical world was a lot simpler. Uh, and it was it was never easy, but uh, we didn't have as many of these variables as our as, as our new crop of junior officers have. You know, dealing with uh, uh, contested electromagnetic spectrum and dealing with uh, you know all the confusion that comes when your your signals are are, are cut and when you have uh, you know a variety of things that you you have to juggle. Uh, yeah. So I, my assessment is I think they're doing okay. Uh, I. I can't say with as much certainty that our senior officers and our, our uh, uh, general officers are living up to the same standard that we've expected of our general officers in the past. And I, I say this with uh, uh, a, a uh, not to diminish the the professionalism of our of our senior general officers, but there has been unfortunately. Uh, a layer of uh, of corruption in the civil military divide, and it's become worse over the last five years, ten years. Uh, you know, it makes me makes me a little sick to my stomach when I see these long lists of general officers who are signing up for uh, petitions or uh, you know sending off their uh, you know political opinions uh, and uh, for one party or the other. Uh, and of course, everybody's got the freedom to say whatever they want. Uh, that's, you know, that's uncontested. Uh, but, you know, our general officers have a special responsibility. They, when the American people uh, see them in civilian clothes after retirement, they're not seeing uh, a, an independent person who's, you know, has, a, has an opinion that they want to voice. They're, they're seeing a, a U.S. military officer uh, expressing an opinion, and there's no, uh, there's no separation of that. So, I think we, I think our the American public has become maybe uh, a little bit confused about where the line is drawn, and for good reason because it's getting blurred, and they wonder are these general officers becoming so politically uh, minded uh, 
the second that they take the uniform off or have they always were they that way when they were in uniform and facing decisions on their own political persuasion or the direction of a particular political party or a singular president and it, that's confusing and it's dangerous and uh, I hate to see it and I hope we get the ship turned around uh, sooner rather than later otherwise uh, all of the great work that was done over the last several decades of building the confidence and trust of the U.S. military uh, is that that is going to be corroded by people's um, people's ideas about where the military stands and maybe which political party they belong to or where their loyalties lie. And that confusion is unnecessary and that will lead to uh, some very dramatic downstream effects where you know people may not be interested in sending their sons and daughters to a military that is run by some very politically minded uh, folks in uniform. I know that's a hard question to answer. And, and again, I think it's a sentiment though that I think we're all we're, we're sort of grappling with. Uh, I know I saw, I noticed Dave's um, nonverbal uh, concerns as well and Mike's, um, but it, I, I, I appreciate your answer. That's a, that's sort of the sentiment that I continue to struggle with because of our, what we learned and what our senior leaders are exemplifying to our junior officers is just not, uh, is not good. So thank you so much for that, Matt. I appreciate it. Let's go to Libby. Hi, so forgive the banality of my question because I, unlike many people, do not have military background other than my parents were in the reserves. So kind of tagging on to the end of Drew, the conversation with Drew, I am curious about if you think about <clears throat> in the consumer world, you know who's buying your product, you know who's using it, you know what the, the mission is of the organization per se. <laughs> with what you were doing so incredibly complex with all these facets, the politics, the world peace, how did you keep you and your team focused on this is our product, this is our mission, and just remind them, especially given what you just talked about, um, just remind them on a regular basis what we're doing, why we're doing it, <clears throat> not so much the, the, how, the how, but the why and the what? Yeah, that's a great question. That's one of the, one of the complicated things when it comes to the policymaking world or the national security policy world or even uh, strategy development is it's not a it's not a quantitative science there's no number that you can assign to the work that you're doing you can measure inputs but you it's very difficult to measure the outputs how do you how do you measure the fact that we didn't go to war with russia this year or how do you measure the uh the um uh alliance cohesion in a, in a way that is more than just anecdotal or, uh, you know, just based on observations. It's very difficult. And it's the, it's the tension uh, that comes with, you know, the, those types of, uh, that, with that type of work. And uh, we dealt with this at the uh, Pentagon uh, over and over again, uh, where the, the, uh, you know, the senior leaders, they want, they want something, they want a scorecard, they want a stoplight chart, they want red, red, yellow, green, how are we doing? Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Well, uh, some of the, you know, some things uh, you, you can't really assign it. We just don't know. We, we hope that our exercises or, you know, the size of Atlantic Resolve has a deterrent effect on Russia and its decision-making process, but you just don't know. So when it comes to trying to keep a team focused on what's important and what exactly we're doing and uh, identifying the most 
important political, most important uh, pieces of the operation and being laser focused on those, uh, it, it really just comes down to uh, you know, being very clear about what those are and then constantly communicating those. Uh, when we had our, um, uh, we had dust up between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia uh, in the fall of 2020, I was responsible for bringing the interagency together uh, from the White House level to discuss exactly what we were doing and, and what was going on. Uh, and as you can imagine, uh, there were lots of lots of attack angles to this problem about you know, who who was involved, what the players were. I mean, it involved uh, Russia backing Armenia, Turkey backing Azerbaijan, Israel supplying weapons to the Azerbaijanis, uh, Turks providing uh, UAVs that ended up uh, you know swaying the day when it came to winning good chunks of Nagorno-Karabakh back, uh, and you had this swirl of sort of geopolitical factors and it became it, it could have been very easy to get lost in the detail and in the daily uh the, the, uh, the, the daily information that was just piling in as we were trying to sort out where our national interests lie what the certain players were doing where things were going to be going today tomorrow a week a month from now and trying to zip all those together into one piece but we always started with uh, you know, where where do U.S. national interests lie? We always use that as the North Star because in some, in many cases, our, our core U.S. national interests really cut the wheat from the chaff and dictated what we were concerned about, what we weren't concerned about, what we were willing to put uh, effort towards and what we were willing to back off from. So uh, in circumstances where it's fluid, it's uh, volatile, and uncertain, ambiguous, you've got to find that North Star somewhere. For us, it was where does the U.S. national interest lie? We found those. Uh, there were there were a half dozen that were absolutely critical and important. Uh, and then when it came to determining what we were going to do, if it advanced those national interests, then we pursued it. If not, we discarded it and we just left it uh, left it for others to to work on or left left it to develop. And I think that's that's what you have to do in those types of circumstances: is find the core pieces of the the mission and the task. And when there's when there's too much information and not enough time, you've got to focus on what's most important and pursue those re relentlessly, and get after the the, you know, the highest priority items. Thank you. That's incredible. Really appreciate it. Let's go to Steve. Randy, thanks again for another great lessons in leadership. These have all been uh, tremendous. Uh, Matt. Uh, the various points of contact between superpowers, you've touched on politics, nuclear power, uh, military power, obviously land, control of the land is very important. Newest entrant into all of that is uh, our, our artificial intelligence and space technology. Uh, uh, if you would, what, what level of importance do, do those have today and what do you project them uh, to have as an importance going forward? Uh, yeah, we looked very carefully at artificial intelligence and uh, space. Uh, when it comes to the Russia problem set, they're, they're dabbling in artificial intelligence, just like uh, every major country is. Uh, there's certainly uh, very uh, uh, thorough space variation. So they've got lots of, lots of activities in space. These are, 
these are critical capabilities that uh, that the Russians bring that they're that they're sharpening that they're experimenting with uh, and that they're figuring out what to do with uh, in space. Uh, we're very concerned about the Russians uh, and their ability to uh, take out major parts of our satellite network. And you know, we just saw last year the Russians tested an anti-satellite test, uh, much to our objections. When I was still at the White House, we were working closely with the Russian National Security Council staff, warning them not to do this type of activity with uh, debris-producing anti-satellite tests in orbit. Uh, but they did it anyway, of course, because they have to demonstrate that they can do it. Uh, so we, we're, we're very concerned about what the Russian intentions are with space. Our entire uh, military apparatus when it comes to deploying force and using precision fires and, uh, and coordinating a global, uh, global operation is very reliant upon our, our satellites and our communications and our, and our precision uh, global positioning system. So those are hard to defend and the Russians are looking for ways to potentially blind us in that area uh, in the event of a some form of future conflict. So that is becoming a, uh, you know, a huge area of, uh, of uh, uh, defense and offense and trying to figure out where the Russians are headed. On the artificial intelligence side, uh, again, this, this has some dire consequences if the, if the Russians are uh, able to perfect it or potentially work with their Chinese counterparts who are also very uh, becoming very adept at artificial intelligence. And we're just concerned that uh, when it comes to the use of artificial intelligence, the Russians won't have the same ethical, moral, or practical considerations when they're building these types of systems because uh, the artificial intelligence side is going to involve uh, building uh, systems where the shooter, the sensor, and the decision maker uh, our, uh, that, that decision time is going to get compressed down to a very, uh, very short span of time. And we're worried that the, uh, the Russians, uh, in their, in their pursuit of, uh, making the system more capable, uh, will take people out of the system and create artificial intelligence, uh, systems that will, uh, will release weapons or launch attacks or loose missiles, uh, because a machine dictated that, uh, that that had to be done. Uh, so that is very concerning. Uh, the Russians had, uh, the, there's con some concerns that they've already developed a system like this, sort of a doomsday system where uh, without hearing from their central command uh, in Moscow or any of their military commanders, uh, if, if the system detects uh, a nuclear detonation on the Russian homeland, uh, it, that system itself, an artificial intelligence system might uh, preemptively launch uh, uh, Russian missiles at uh, at the U.S. homeland. Uh, that's that's very concerning. We don't know if that's the case. There, there's rumors about it in the open press, uh, but that's the type of thing that we're concerned about the Russians doing is creating uh, systems that uh, are potentially reliant on machines where the Russians don't understand the capabilities or uh, don't understand the, the ways in which a system like that could go wrong, and that it could uh, unleash a weapon system against the United States that sparks a, a series of unfortunate events that leads to a broader conflict. So we're, I think we're watching that closely and we're hoping that uh, we can come up with some rules or some definitions or some rules of the road uh, that we can get the Russians to abide by. If I can add to that, uh, the latest developments, at least the awareness of biotechnology, gene editing, um, this whole thing with the uh, COVID, um, 
What are your thoughts about those things as a, uh, a point of conflict between nations? Uh, hopefully, the on the bio war side, I, I think uh, uh, the Russians are mostly in agreement with us that those are those are bad things to get involved in, and we're somewhat hopeful that they have the control measures to keep uh, any of the uh, you know any of the dabbling that they're doing in those areas uh, to you know minimize the risk, uh, but. Uh, Russians are, we don't, they, they don't tend to abide by the treaties that they've signed. So, uh, when they, you know, when they look at weapons, they are, they're, they're not going to take into account whatever restrictions they put on themselves. So, uh, we're not ruling out the fact that, uh, Russians are continuing to experiment with or use, uh, those types of, uh, you know, terrifying weapons. We think they have the common sense enough to, uh, limit the types of things that they would dabble in, but. Uh, that can never be that can never be ruled out. There's some other nasty things going on in Russia too, where uh, they've had uh, islands where they dumped anthrax, um, uh, you know, in up in the Arctic region uh, for disposal. Some of those areas are thawing out. Some of the uh, water barriers that used to be in place are draining, uh, and there's animals tracking back and forth to some of these places and, and pulling uh, the ghosts of previous experiments, you know, out of out of their hiding places. So. There's no manner of horrors that can emerge from Russia. The bio, uh, you know, the bio and chemical weapon side is just uh, another uh, another item on that list. I think you gave us some perspectives on Kirk's question already, just about the the circle. But let's go build on Kirk's question just a bit. You there, Kirk? Yeah, I am, and uh, thanks, Matt. But yeah, I love um, your description of of toughness and grit and who the Russians are. My question is, again, I'm a little bit warped. I tried to do some business with Russia and it was corrupt and it couldn't happen. And then on the flip side, I've had Russians come immigrants and worked with them and they love the great American dream, right? I come here, the capitalist concept, and, and you see some of the things with, you know, the Ukraine and that, that circle that you mentioned. My question is, what's the hope, what's the culture, the everyday Russian person culture, the, the core ground level? What, what's the culture like? What's the hope? There, there is no, what is the Russian, we know what the great American dream is, right? And we have immigrants from throughout the world who want to come here because of that. What's the great hope or Russian dream? Well, and again, there's thousands of years of, of service to country and the greatest country on earth, right? That's right here in our backyard. That's Russia. So we, um, we play hockey, right? Who, what is that culture and who are they? And I, 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 I don't understand how that, that socialism resonates with people and how they accept it. I don't, I don't, but they must, I don't, I don't get it. Can you explain some of that? Yeah. I mean, briefly, uh, you, you kind of hit on it. There are uh, two different perspectives. You know, we, we grew up in the United States, the shining city on the hill. Next, tomorrow is going to be brighter than today. Our descendants will be more prosperous than, than we are. Uh, life, life will get better, and uh, history is one long arrow towards uh, improvement and betterment. Uh, and that's that's the life that's the life we've lived. That's the you know our our country's path. You, you know, brighter days are ahead. 
Russians don't share that perspective. Uh, Russians have a very uh, uniquely pessimistic viewpoint on the future. They don't see brighter days ahead. Uh, they hope for brighter days ahead. They've got a famous saying, you know, hope for the best, expect the usual. They would like to see brighter days. They are firmly convinced that that's not Russia's destiny. Uh, and, you know, I've got a book on my shelf here, The uh, Agony of the Russian Soul, which is um, uh, an insight into trying to package exactly what the Russian soul is. And in and, and one major respect, uh, you could classify the Russian soul, so to speak, as uh, Russians believe they're the, the one nation on the planet that is designed to suffer for the sins of our broad civilization and bring uh, bring the world on to another side. It's, it's uh, embedded in sort of the orthodox religion where uh, you suffering and uh, you know, doing your time here on earth in suffering is will produce results for humanity. That's a, a very orthodox, uh, Russian orthodox religious perspective. And it, uh, it, it comes from, you know, they're, they're a deep, uh, deep and ancient um, pieces of their culture. So they don't see, like I said, they don't see uh, things getting better. They, uh, they are there to trudge through life, uh, make the best of what they have, uh, do what they can for their families, uh, you know, try to, you know, try, try to live this life as best they can. But they know obstacles are against them, the weather, uh, their governments, their autocrats, uh, you know, the, the forces that be in Moscow. Uh, all of the invasions, the famines, the poverty—that's that's just Russia's lot, in their opinion. They they would like to reverse that, but they're not expecting that that's going to happen. It's a very different way of living. Uh, when you have when you have that perspective, you approach uh, your your life, you approach your life decisions. Uh, you you expect certain things out of your government uh, that are completely different than what we expect, and that's that's why they they sort of. Uh, produce and replicate uh, the the types of governments that they have and the, the way that they're organized. Um, Russia is a very communal uh, type of society. Uh, you saw these in small villages throughout their history. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the, the communists uh, uh, fed on that and, uh, you know, built, built upon the way the Russians have uh, lived their lives for centuries. Uh, so they're very, very trusting of themselves and, uh, you know, they're in core family. They're very distrustful of everybody outside their immediate group. And uh, that applies at a national level as well. So I, I don't know if that answers the question. I mean, it's, it's dangerous territory cool. making broad generalizations about an entire culture. But if I had to distill the, what the Russians are and how they differ from us, uh, they, uh, they're, they're not expecting sunnier days ahead. They're ready to weather the storm. Uh, and yeah. they feel like that's that's their duty. They absorbed the Mongol invasion so that Western Europe could thrive. They absorbed uh, Napoleonic invasion so that uh, the rest of the world could be at peace. They defeated Hitler and suffered massively uh, so that, um, that that evil could be uh, you know taken from the scene. That's that's how they see themselves. But they are they're definitely ready uh, and willing. I wouldn't say willing, but they they know their destiny is to suffer on behalf of the rest of the world. No, that's really helpful. And I like you kind of it resonated when you said at the very end, um, within the villages, they will trust their family, but outside their core family unit, they're very distrustful. And so that I, I can see how that can be at the core and and go towards that broader understanding or belief of 
I, I can't even trust my government, right? Thanks, yeah, Josh. That's helpful. Thank you, Matt. That's a fascinating perspective, Matt. I'm glad you shared that. Let's go back to uh, some leadership experiences and go to Joel. Matt, thanks for doing this. Um, I'm just curious. Uh, I mean, you talked a lot about so much of the noise that someone in your position has to deal with. And, and the best I could do is compare it at, at such a, a lower level to, to working in baseball where I generally tend to know more than almost anyone that is watching, and that's where all the noise is coming from. So you, you learn to tune it out. In your case, this is more life and death. You're seeing, I assume, potentially friends that are suddenly talking heads that are experts on one side or another. And you're hearing from friends, civilians that think they know everything based on the source that they're watching it from. I, I was taught fairly early on that the results of a baseball game won't affect what I do. So if everyone is ready to jump off of a bridge because the team lost, I'm just going to go and do it again tomorrow and it doesn't bother me. But, but you can get sucked in. So how, how have you been able to, especially right now, with as volatile as everything is, and I think maybe going through some things we've never seen before, we haven't, and, and maybe you have, maybe you haven't, how do you tune it all out? How were you able to tune it all out when you see a, a Vinman sitting next to you who may be getting death threats and, and on and on and on? How, how do you make it not personal? Yeah, it, it's it's hard because um, you know it's very surreal, especially about October of uh, 2020. Uh, when you know trying to keep my head down, working on a variety of uh, tasks that uh, that needed to be done that were very high priority. Uh, but we have all the TVs going in the office, and uh, and every every one colleagues of mine uh, from the you know Deputy Assistant Secretary Cooper to George Kent from the State Department to uh, Fiona Hill to uh, Alex himself and uh, uh, Tim Morrison, who was our senior director. All these people are up there on TV in front of uh, in front of the cameras giving testimony about uh, issues that we had dealt with directly. And it was uh, in, incredibly strange uh, to be in the middle of that and to see uh, colleagues of mine who were you know subjected to the, the bright lights of a uh, you know a news cycle that is really very unforgiving. Uh, it's uh, you know, when it comes to coverage of these types of events, uh, every media outlet takes their own set of facts, uh, combines, recombines, and assembles them to make a distinct narrative. Many of those facts, if not all the facts, are probably true, uh, but when you arrange them in a certain sequence, uh, they tell one completely different story from uh, an, another side that, is, that paints in a completely different picture. So I uh, you know, I, I tried to stay, you know, as mentally as uh, distant from it as possible. Uh, I was lucky I survived. I didn't get any of these uh, congressional subpoenas or uh, have to deal with it. So I was one of the crew who was able to kind of pick up, uh, pick up one of the oars and, and keep rowing while other other folks were taking incoming rounds. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it comes down to prioritizing and figuring out what uh, what what you can do and what's within your control and what's not within your control. That's uh, that's what I, how I had to approach every single day. And there was 
no other way around it. It's not, we didn't have the option to quit. You know, you can't uh, say, oh, well, this, is, this is too hard. This is, you know, too much attention and too much heat. And I would rather be doing something else right now. You know, that, that wasn't an option. So that was taken, that was taken off the table. Uh, but yeah, keeping, keeping the focus on what's important, you know, knowing that, you know, this too shall pass this, you know, these types of things are rainstorms and thunderclouds uh, that, that come uh, do a lot of damage and then move on. But we still had a job to do. We, uh, you know, continue to focus on what exactly we were expected and did our best under the circumstances to keep the wheels moving and keep the, keep the trains of our national security policy portfolios uh, in action. And, you know, recognizing that there are a whole bunch of other things that were, uh, you know, tearing away at, at, at the team and tearing away at, uh, you know, our ability to get things done. Well, I have learned a ton today, Matt, your perspectives from having lived among the people over there really were enlightening and it's not something we normally get from the news. But one of the things you said earlier, people everywhere are the same. And so folks here in Lewisburg are getting up and going to work and getting their kids to their ball games and getting kids to their band concerts and the same in OP and the same in Kansas city. And so with all of this in the news about Ukraine, Russia, why does it matter? Uh, to the average American, probably doesn't matter one bit. Uh, they they can probably uh, you know watch watch a few minutes of the news and you know be interested that that stuff's going on. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, uh, could matter could matter a lot. Uh, you know, if we get uh, if we get our policy with Russia wrong, or we make uh, we make missteps, or we we do things through action or inaction uh, that erode our relationships with uh, key European allies, uh, then things are going to get very difficult. Um, I mean, the average person is going to see it when they go uh, and fill up a tank of gas. Uh, if we get things wrong with Russia and we, uh, the energy supplies are a casualty of our missteps or our geopolitical uh, mistakes, uh, then you can you can just go ahead and watch the price of gas skyrocket uh, to you know 120 dollars a barrel or more. That's that's a direct impact. Uh, not that the average American could do much about it, but uh, that's that that's how it's going to be manifested on a daily basis. Other things too is if we get this wrong with Russia and uh, we uh, send the wrong signals about our determination to maintain security in a key part of the world and to support our allies and partners. There's another major power out there who will take some lessons learned from that, and that's uh, China. And China uh, may make some decisions based on how we approach Russia and how we approach this crisis in Ukraine and draw some conclusions about our commitment and our ability to uh, wield our power on the world stage. And that will have drastic ramifications if the Chinese uh, take the wrong uh, assumptions or make the, make the wrong conclusions about what we're doing in Ukraine and apply that to their aggression towards Taiwan. And if, if and when that happens, then the, the impacts to our society, to our economy, uh, and to uh, you know, potential conflict will be dramatic. So it's pretty fair to say that for the long term, these, these are critical issues, even out here in Lewisburg, and we need to stay in touch with our elected officials and stay on top of this. Absolutely. Yeah. As much as we would like uh, the world to not 
uh, reach out and touch us. Uh, we we're not really we don't really have that luxury. So we have to we have to constantly be engaged with uh, with the outside world and hope that our elected leaders and our policymakers are in tune with uh, with the right decisions and making uh, you know making those decisions with the best best information and best intentions. A lot of great comments on here. I think folks were really inspired by your words and your lessons. You've had a really unique perspective to a part of the world that most of us don't experience and appreciate you coming here and, and sharing those insights and, and just help us understand a little bit about why these events that seem so far away really impact our lives here. Well, thanks, Randy. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, participate. This was, was a lot of fun. Yep. Great job, Matt. Appreciate it. Good to see everyone. Thanks for the great questions and great insights. Hope all of you have a great weekend. All right. Bye, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this week's Lessons in Leadership with Matt Dimmick. I know I've learned a lot, and I hope you did as well. You can see the video of our conversation with Matt at leadershipwithrandy.com. Now let's get out there and keep working hard to make a difference. Keep believing, dreaming, and doing big things. I hope to see you again soon. Bye.